Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Great to be back for the next episode of The Other Hand. I'm not even going to list all the things that we could talk about today because it's become beyond cliche. That we do not cover the things that we're going to say. So I'm going to jump straight into something that I hope will give you a good segue into stuff that I know you want to talk about to do with Ireland in particular, its housing market, its inflation rate, but also the inflation story globally, which is the one that grips pretty much every financial and indeed political headline. And I'm going to start with a particular aspect of inflation in the US. I know that that's got resonance in Ireland. It's certainly got lots of resonance in the UK. We've got a very similar phenomena going on in the UK, which is that rents are going up a lot. We don't really have a compelling explanation in the UK, at least why that is happening, because it seems that housing market activity gently is slowing, as it is in the United States. The inventory of houses for sale is slowly going up in the States in, in most markets. There seems to be a little bit of air coming out of the housing market, the ownership market. But rents are just going nuts. I'll quote you some numbers, Jim. In Miami, year over year, rents are up 40%. In Orlando, they're up 25%. The median new rental price last month in Manhattan. Now, Manhattan's going to be an expensive market of course it is, but this one made my eyes water. The median new rental, monthly rental in Manhattan last month was $4,150. It's an extraordinary story. I know that rents are a real issue in Ireland. It's certainly becoming one in the UK. The London market, for example, rent-wise has suddenly taken off. As I say, we don't know why. 
But it seems to be part of this overall housing problem that all of these economies that we continuously talk about suffer from. Rents appears to be the latest aspect of the housing crisis. And of course, it's part of the inflation story. And I believe we've had some inflation numbers out of Ireland this week. Yes, Chris, we have indeed. Um, Irish headline inflation in July unchanged at 9.1%. And the increase during the month of just 0.4% was pretty tame relative to what we've seen in recent times. And the key reasons for that is that both petrol and diesel prices fell during the month, reflecting what's happening on global oil markets. But still, petrol prices were 35.4% higher than a year ago, and diesel 44.8%. There's a couple of other interesting aspects. Food price inflation continues to build. The headline rate now at 8.1%. And we have been alluding to this for some time about food being the next pressure point on the inflation front. Bread, meat, milk prices all rising very strongly. Something else that's interesting is the, you know, there is a 9% special temporary VAT rate for the hospitality sector amongst other sectors in the Irish economy at the moment. And there is a lot of speculation that this 9% will end um, at the end of February next year because of what's happening on the accommodation side. And, you know, we've heard all the stories and we've discussed what's happening on the hotel prices frontier. But it was interesting yesterday in July, the cost of accommodation on average up by 21.7% over the last 12 months, well ahead of the headline rate of inflation, whereas in the restaurant sector, up by just 5.6%. And despite the fact that restaurants are facing all of the same input cost increases as the hotel sector, um, but inflation in the restaurant sector well below the average rate of inflation in the economy. And of course, the restaurant sector is now very concerned that um, as a slap in the face to the hotel sector, that the VAT rate will be brought back from 9% to 13.5%. And the restaurant sector believes um, it will struggle to sustain that sort of increase. So there is an interesting debate going on there. And of course, from the Department of Finance's perspective, the trick is, or at least the challenge is, would it be possible to split the VAT rate and leave it at 9% for restaurants, uh, increase it to 13.5% for hotels. So I think there's going to be a bit of debate around that. But in relation to the housing situation, lo- lots of data on the housing market. Today, we got the June house price inflation numbers and national average house prices in June, 14.1% higher than a year ago. Um, but amazingly, national prices are now back at April 2007 levels and April 2007 levels, that was the peak of the housing market before it subsequently crashed. Um, Dublin prices, um, the headline rate running at 11.8% and outside of Dublin running at 16%. So a lot of heat. Are Dublin prices prices back to where they were yet? Not yet. They're about um, just over 8% below the February 2007 peak. So not quite there yet. And indeed, outside of Dublin, um, prices are just 1.3% below the May 2007 peak. So uh, amazing stuff happening on the house price front still uh, continuing. Um, But DAF.ie published uh, its latest rental report this week. And um, Mark Paul 
had a go at people who misinterpret these data in his normally very good column in the Irish Times um, this morning. He was basically saying that, you know, people have latched on to a statistic that there are just 716 properties to rent in Ireland at the moment. Um, that is specifically not the case. The 716 refers to properties that are advertised on the daft.ie website. And obviously all properties to rent are not on the daft.ie. Uh, so it, it, 716 is not a representation of the country per se. However, this is the lowest level of rental properties ever experienced by daft.ie since it started this series i think back in 2006 so you know mark paul was sort of nitpicking a little bit about how people interpret these data uh, but you know it, it's quite clear that if the daft.ie um, rental availability is at the lowest level ever well that does send out strong messages about the overall market you know there is no denying that fact the other piece that he takes issue with is the interpretation of rent price increases. Um, the DAF.ie um, index shows that rents are up by 12.6%. The rental measure in the consumer price index published yesterday shows year-on-year -year growth of 12.9%. And Mark was sort of having a go with people who believe that this sort of these rent increases apply to everybody. Of course, that's not the situation. And anybody who interprets those dates that way, I think, is missing a trick. But the reality is it's only new properties coming on the rental market are seeing these sort of price increases for existing renters. That is not the situation. But it is still indicative of an incredibly harsh rental market. That's the key point there, Jim, that, of course, we've got these very hot rental markets on both sides of the Atlantic now which is interesting, if a little difficult to explain in, in certain circumstances. Um, but I guess in, in others, we, we, we have a, an explanation. The reason why rents in places like Miami are going up even more than they are in Ireland is the working from home or leaving the big city thing that we know that's going on elsewhere in the world. I know that um, it's going on in France, for example, property prices and rents um, long, long ways from Paris are going up strongly in certain regions of France because of working from home. And that, that certainly is a factor. But we perform this public service on this podcast of interpreting data and explaining when even people, um, good people like Mark Paul, um, get it slightly wrong. Um, there's a couple of things about data that I'd like to add to what you've said which is in the context of inflation data in the United States this week, we had some very good numbers, better than expected numbers anyway. And the year-on-year uh, -year rate of inflation was still pretty high, but it came in less than expected because the month-over-month -month inflation rate came in at zero. And one of the things that surprised me was first um, how people don't understand the difference between year-over-year -year and month-over-month, -month, hence people like us perform this public service gym and explain it to people. The other thing that really astonishes me, and I, I kind of sort of knew, knew this, but didn't realize the extent of it, just how political month over month versus year over year percentage changes can be, because there's been this enormous explosion on social media and on other uh, news sources. Um, essentially, people who like Joe Biden talk about 0% inflation, and people who like Donald Trump talk about inflation still going through the roof. 
And of course, they're talking about two numbers. Both of the numbers are absolutely correct, but they're just choosing to interpret them in very, very politicized ways. I've never seen uh, um, quite dull economic data. I mean, inflation data isn't that dull anymore, but it usually is. But um, I, the, the idea that you would have mainstream discussions of the difference between month over month versus year over year is just astonishing. And I think is symptomatic of the politicization of just about everything these days. But another small thing about data, um, and for those of us who are sort of grammar syntax nerds, um, The Economist this week finally admitted that data could be both singular and plural. It's a watershed day for us, Jim, for those of us that have done music in both contexts. I have always used it as a plural. Well, The Economist's style guide this week has said you can use it as a singular. Okay. Chris, can I just... uh... I suppose clarify something. I was I was talking about Mark Paul's piece, and uh, I, I wasn't being critical in the sense that I love Mark Paul's writing. Um, it's one of the few articles I would religiously read in the Irish Times, but um, I I just think um, he was having a go in a way today that wasn't really justified. But anyway, that's beside the point. Um, Mark certainly gets it he knows exactly what these data refer to but what, who he was criticizing were those people who don't know how to interpret those data so just a subtle point there but it's it's, it's a good piece worth reading as always with mark but um this week we had the publication of a lot of papers by the department of finance um, and they're t- called the tax strategy group papers tsg papers and i would recommend to anybody who wants to understand the dynamics of the Irish tax system to download and read those papers. Uh, There's a paper on income tax, there's one on VAT, there's one on corporation tax, one on excise, one on property tax, there's one on social welfare. So it's a really definitive series of publications on the tax system. But the one that I guess uh, tickles my fancy the most is the income tax strategy paper, okay? And before- You are a sad man. You are a sad human being. Sorry, carry on. Chris, I get great satisfaction out of having a swipe at the left, okay? Um, but um, but no, no, Jim. I mean, the one that tickles your fancy. I mean, you do know what is mostly downloaded from the internet, don't you? I do, Chris, yeah. And your fancy is tickled by tax strategy <laughs> papers from the Department of Finance. I think that says a lot, mate. I, I, so, I also like to download um, Bob Dylan videos. I mean, I, I think that says, a, a, that says a lot too. I, I, I downloaded one this morning where he was um, attributing a lot of his musical career to uh, a group of brothers from my part of the world, the Clancy Brothers, who had a huge impact on Dylan back in Greenwich Village in the early 60s. So that that's an aside, Chris, okay? But getting I've been, back... I've been to Tommy Makem and Clancy's bar in Manhattan in the 1980s. In Go fact, I, I was in there one night and I had the pleasure of seeing the late Tommy Makem perform in there impromptu, which was marvellous. Long time ago. Uh, and listen, of course... Listen, yeah. get, get away from this really okay, boring okay. stuff. And let's right, talk right, about Chris, tax. Get, get back to tax. Um, l- last week... The Sunday Business Post, Daniel Murray, uh, had a story about Sinn Féin's input to the Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare. The government set up a Commission on Taxation and Social Welfare and invited inputs from all interested parties. Anybody could actually submit. But um, 
Daniel got his hands on the Sinn Féin submission. And it's fantastic, actually, because it gives us the first insight into what Sinn Féin's tax policy is likely to be should they get into government. Obviously, there's probably a couple of years uh, to pass before that happens. But I think it is an interesting precursor and it's good. Um, and I laud Sinn Féin for coming out, telling us exactly what they intend doing. And people can make up their own minds about the rights or wrongs or the positives or negatives of the tax policy. But basically, they're talking about introducing an income tax, a special income tax rate for people earning over 140,000. They didn't specify what that rate would be, but based on past uh, publications, they, they have been talking about a 3% surcharge. They're talking about increasing the capital gains tax rate from 33 to 40%. They're talking about increasing the inheritance tax rate from 33 to 36% and reducing the threshold below which you pay no tax, inheritance tax, from 335000 to 300000 uh, They're talking about a doubling of employers' PRSI from 11.5% towards the European average of 22.6%. Uh, they're talking about removing income tax credits on income in excess of €100,000. And they sum it all up by saying that they want a tax system where those who have the most pay the most. And that gives me the segue into the income tax tax strategy group paper that I find so stimulating. Can I, okay. can I forecast what you're about to say, Jim? Not on the basis that I know you very well, although I do, but it's that phrase that you just used about people who earn the most paying the most. We want to create a system for that. Um, people like me would immediately just say, Jim, hasn't Ireland got one of those already? Exactly, Chris. That's what I was just about to explain to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Jeez, you're very prescient today. But um, OK, some of the stats are really, really interesting. OK, um, in this year, 2022, it is um, estimated that we will collect 26.7 billion in ta income tax and 4.4 billion of that is the universal social charge. OK, and if we achieve that income tax take, that would account for 39% of total taxes. So income tax, as we know, and we've discussed it often, is by far the biggest tax category. But then if you go into the distribution of who pays that income tax, 34% of income tax earners are totally exempt. Okay. Um, the top 1% of income earners pay 22% of income tax. The top 20% um, of earners pay 77% of total income tax. The bottom 75% of income tax earners, that is people earning below 56,000 a year, um, pay just 18% of total income tax. So, by God, this, this describes an incredibly progressive income tax system. And indeed, Bodies like the OECD, the IMF, the European Commission have stated many times that Ireland's income tax system is one of the most progressive in the world. So the notion that Sinn Féin would seek to introduce a tax system where those who have the most pay the most 
is a little bit disingenuous. That's exactly where we are at the moment. And I think what we need to be really, really careful about is demonizing people who earn a lot of money. Because if we drive people earning over over 100,000 out of our workforce, well, then our economy will suffer significantly as a result of that. In other words, I think Sinn Féin or anybody else needs to be very, very careful about killing the goose that lays the golden egg. Um, the other, a couple of other interesting points about the income tax tax strategy group was, um, you know, we have two tax rates in the income tax system here, 20% and 40%. And once you go over 36,800 euro gross salary, you move from 20% to 40% marginal tax rate. And of course you have PRSI, um, and so on, on top of that. But you go from 20 to 40% at a relatively low level of income. Fine Gael promised some time back that they would lift that threshold to 50,000. Um, they're certainly a long way away from that still, uh, despite a number of years of being in government. But um, the other, I guess, interesting piece is that this income tax, <clears throat> excuse me, this income tax strategy paper that has so tickled my fancy. Um, And indeed, all of the tax strategy papers that were published this week, um, it could be the case that none of these proposals ever see the light of day, but they do set out all of the parameters for what government could do and how much each measure would cost. And it's up to the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expansion Reform to actually decide, well, the minister, obviously, the ministers, excuse me, to decide what policies are implemented. But... um, I think the focus in the budget is going to be, number one, there's going to be a very significant social welfare package to try and alleviate the cost of living pressures uh, people are facing at the moment. Secondly, they're talking about a significant indexation of the various income tax credits and allowances. So in other words, to try and compensate people for higher inflation by giving them larger tax allowances but um a three percent indexation okay would cost 630 million so it's a very expensive measure um i somebody sort of suggested to me there a few days ago that um one of the things we should perhaps look at here is there you know there is a significant temptation at the moment to adjust everything on the basis of a 9.1% inflation rate. Okay. And the problem is if you increase social welfare payments by 10%, um, you know, there's no likelihood that when inflation comes back down to 3%, that those social welfare, or even if prices start to fall, as has been the case a few times over recent years, uh, there's no possibility that social welfare rates would be reduced. So this, any increases in social welfare and indeed reductions in tax become sort of permanently embedded in the system. Okay, and and, and that can create problems in the event of less prosperous economic times. But somebody was sort of suggesting to me that, you know, energy is the biggest driver of inflation over the last, has been over the last year. So would it be a good idea to strip out inflation, the inflation rate excluding energy? And based on yesterday's reading, that would be 5.2%. And you base any social welfare increases or tax changes on that low rate of inflation, okay? And then you use once-off payments, once-off measures to compensate people for 
the energy inflation that we've seen over the last 12 months. So given that it's a once off, it means it doesn't become permanently embedded in the expenditure system. And we have actually an example of where this sort of policy has worked over the last couple of years. Some of those COVID interventions were once off interventions. So I think it's a it's an interesting nuanced way of looking at how you compensate people for the cost of living increases we are seeing at the moment. Yeah. Now, now, Chris, I hope you can see why I've been so excited by this stuff. Well, it, it, this stuff is absolutely riveting, Jim. And the indexation um, of allowances and tax credits is a debate that should have been settled a long, long time ago. And in the UK, it was actually, until it wasn't. In the 1970s, there was something called the Rooker-Wise Amendment, which was an amendment to a finance bill which legislated for indexing. And that was, of course, during at a time of high inflation when it was really important. When we went through all of those years where inflation wasn't important, then we didn't care about indexing. Now that inflation has come back, we do care. It should be part of the fiscal system that these sorts of things are indexed, because otherwise finance ministers end up quite liking inflation because of what's called fiscal drag a horrible term that basically means that we get these stealth taxes, which is what inflation does to how much tax we end up paying if all of these allowances are not indexed. It sounds arcane, but it's incredibly important. And these are incredibly powerful effects. I think the idea of giving one-off payments to people to compensate them or just to allow them to heat their homes and cook their food uh, is an important step and, and is the right way to think about it in the context of COVID payments, similar payments to people in need directed, people like you and me, Jim, should not be compensated for high energy prices at all. Um, we, we are the ones that need to just take it on the chin. Uh, high energy prices may or may not last. We don't know. Um, but th th there's lots of good things that come from energy prices. People like us and people generally um, will conserve energy. We will spend less on it. We will consume less of it. It'll hasten the green transition and it'll get us off these um, uh, hydrocarbons, which is what we need from not just an environmental point of view now, but also from a geostrategic point of view. You cannot be beholden to people like Putin and people like him for your energy security. We have to rethink energy security. And one way, of, there are many things you need to do. Um, you need to do lots of investment in alternative sources of energy. But uh, people like us have got to retrofit our homes, drive less, fly less, and do carbon offsets and do all the switching uh, as a result of prices making us do it. So that, that's, that's my view on that. So I think the target the, for people who cannot afford any of that, for people who need to be able to heat their homes this winter and need help for that, then yes, by all means, do one-off payments. Tell me, Chris, can I just ask you, you're soon-to-be political hero, Liz Truss, um, what do you think of her energy policies? Okay, Jim, I'll read a quote to you that um, I dug up from one of a thousand Liz Trust quotes to, that are just jaw-dropping. She's an astonishing woman. And as you can probably tell with your little ironic flourish there, Jim, I am not a fan. So this is Liz Trust speaking in recent days. You still days. prefer them, Boris. Uh, it's a close-run thing these days. I, I think Liz Trust now will... Um, consign Boris Johnson to being the second worst prime minister in British history. Yeah, she's very untrustworthy, isn't she? Yeah. Um, Donald, um, 
Liz Trump uh, is, is, is one uh, nickname I've seen used, not without reason. So one of the many jaw-dropping things that she said this week, and I quote now, I will stop people filling fields with paraphernalia like solar farms. What we want is crops and we want livestock. Now, Jim, as a wannabe farmer, as a frustrated farmer, surely that sort of thing would appeal to you. Yeah, as somebody who was fecked off the farm when I was 18, more like it. Um, yeah, no, it, it doesn't appeal to me at all, Chris, to be honest, because, um, you know, I, I am a fan of solar energy. I am a fan of wind energy. Um, I am a fan of developing a portfolio of energy that includes, but is not dom- well, is not totally dominated by renewables. But I think solar and wind will have a key part role to play in creating a sustainable energy portfolio. Um, I think n- not least because of the exposure we have to rogue countries that control energy supply. So we need to reduce that dependence. We obviously need to move towards our climate change goals. So uh, the notion that you grow more crops is great, but the notion that you just continue to grow the number of livestock, um, I think that is pretty pretty untenable um, in a climate context. So no, that that notion actually doesn't appeal to me as a farmer remotely, Chris. But um, I, I, the more I see of Liz Truss, the really the more worried I become about the future of the United Kingdom. I am. I, th- I think. I think she's diabolical in many ways. But but Chris, I don't want to. We we've been accused really in recent times of having some very downbeat, depressing podcasts, and I I think it is worth. Uh, alluding to a few positive things that are happening out there. I know you have some stuff you read about the United States that I think is interesting. And before I hand over to you to talk about that, um, I I saw some data during the week on what's happening on the global supply chain front. And these global supply chains have been highlighted over the last 18 months as a key part of the whole price setting mechanism in many uh, goods. But um, 40 foot metal boxes, which are shipping containers, um, the price of those is down 45% from its peak in autumn 2021. Okay, still at elevated levels, but 45% below where they were uh, just under a year ago. Uh, the number of ships queuing in Los Angeles port is down 75% since January. And in fact, LA port has had the busiest June in a century. Um, The New York Federal Reserve produces a global supply chain pressure index, which seeks to measure globally the pressure on supply chains, and it creates an index. This index is now down 57% from its peak. Some of that, of course, and delivery times are shortening significantly. Some of this could, of course, be down to the fact that we're getting weaker demand in the economy. But I, I do think there is something more fundamental happening there. Um, and, it, and it all does play into a narrative uh, that perhaps we've seen the peak of significant inflation rises and that the rate of inflation is more likely to decelerate over the coming months than not. Obviously, a lot of that will depend on what's happening on the energy front and particularly in relation to the natural gas situation, um, and I, I guess specifically in Europe. But but that th- those indicators are certainly 
positive from the perspective of future inflation. And of course, what happens in the United States does tend to percolate around the world eventually. But you read some pretty upbeat stuff about the US economy and where it's going. Yeah. And as you say, I think it's important to uh, where we can tell the positive side of things to, to, to be a good news podcast, um, as well as just telling it the way it is, which unfortunately recently um, there's lots of reasons to be gloomy. There, there still are lots of reasons. And we touched on those a lot, ranging from war in Ukraine to housing problems to health problems and, and all the rest of it. Uh, but the, an article by a Nobel Prize winning economist by the name of Michael Spence caught my eye this week in which he put together some recent legislative changes in the United States to reach some very upbeat conclusions. The three pieces of legislation that he focuses on are last November's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, that was the Joe Biden uh, stimulus bill. The more recent, the second one, the more recent Chips and Science Act, that's giving a greater than $52 billion boost to the US semiconductor industry, that's silicon chips to you and I. Uh, that's important both economically and strategically because it's a bit like energy. Where do you want these key inputs to your economy, like oil and gas, to come from? You don't want them to come from areas like Russia, we know for oil and gas. And it is a sad truth that an awful lot of the world's current consumption of semiconductors are made in Taiwan. And we know that that has the potential we hope not, but it has, certainly has the potential for lots of trouble going forward. So the U.S., for all sorts of good economic and strategic reasons, is building, throwing a lot of money at building a semiconductor industry, which it has already, of course, um, but it wants a bigger one. And I think that makes an awful lot of sense. The third piece of legislation was called, and it was a slightly exaggerated title, I think, the Inflation Reduction Act, um, but only slightly misnamed. Um, this contained the largest investment in climate action in U.S. history. And Spence argues, and I think plausibly, that this gives the U.S. a fighting chance of approaching its goal of halving emissions by 2030. The Inflation Reduction Act had other things in it as well. It had money for lower prescription drug prices, um, and it had some stuff on corporation tax reform, which will interest the OECD and, of course, Ireland. And there have been conflicting interpretations of what this might actually mean for corporation tax reform. But it, at the very least, is a baby step in that, in that direction. Spence looks at these three pieces of legislation from a number of perspectives. The first one is the fact that they got it done in this supposedly highly partisan world that is Washington, D.C., and it is. They still managed to agree pretty chunky legislation, um, all of which is a good th thing. This is a good thing in and of itself. But the nature, the detail behind these three pieces of legislation, the investment it means in the US's economic future, not least environment, but also physical infrastructure and technology infrastructure, Spence, and this is his field of expertise, reckons that this sets up over the medium to longer term, it's not a short term thing, but over the medium to longer term, this sets up the chance, a good chance of doing something about the US's fundamental low productivity growth problem that it's had in recent years. And if that's true, 
that the US is going to make some progress towards solving productivity problem. That's enormous news. It would make you very bullish on the stock market, for example, longer term, once we've gotten through all of these shorter term issues. And if you thought that these shorter term issues, like you just said, were starting to go away because inflation is coming down, um, I, th I think it's too early to tell. We've had some very encouraging data this week, but it, it's only this week. We need a, a run of that data for us to be confident we're on the other side of the inflation problem. But if you could see us on the other side of this inflation problem, putting all of this stuff together about long run productivity growth in the States, you'd buy the US stock market and you'd be very optimistic. Now, I know everybody says, well, what about Donald Trump coming back and all that political stuff? But let's park that for today and just say it's nice to hear some good news about the US economy, which, after all, is the world's most important economy, the world's most important stock market. And it's very fashionable to be gloomy. But let's have a nice weekend thinking nice thoughts about the US. Indeed. Yeah, it's 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 it's, it's a compelling story. Um, and I, I, I guess it sort of resonates with history, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, the, despite, US, the US has a habit of doing this eventually. It doesn't, it doesn't indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, on that, the energy question, um, Chris Joyce in the FT had a piece during the week, which was really good about European energy and natural gas and so on. And uh, it would take another 35 minutes to discuss the content of that. But um, another sort of upbeat message from him was that the current crisis with Russian gas is forcing Europe to diversify away from Russian gas, um, increasing concentration on liquid natural gas, for example, importing semi-manufactured goods from outside the European Union where you know there's no gas issue. Um, coal mines are being opened, not a particularly good thing. Uh, the German nuclear industry appears to be coming back to life again, which is a good thing. In some countries, at least, there appears to be um, a renewed enthusiasm for renewable energy, um, if you pardon the pun. Um, they're talking, they're, he's looking at cross-border sharing of gas around the European Union. And of course, there is there are significant moves afoot to try and um, improve conservation. So, you know, he's arguing that this crisis will force countries to actually reduce their dependence on energy imported from Russia. And that that alone will do more damage to the Russian economy than all of the sanctions that are in place at the moment. And I think that is an interesting, it is an upbeat assessment. Um, but um, here in Ireland, I certainly would hope that we buy into all of those diversification measures and particularly drive the renewable energy one on. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons why um, I, when, when one strives to find slivers of optimism amongst the, the torrent of bad news that we seem to have on a daily basis, I do think that this, what we're speaking about here is hastening the green transition. That means a lot of investment in our economies. And this is what we need to see from the Irish government. What we need to see from every government is what they're doing in the States is investing, spending money um, on the infrastructure for the green transition accepting that there are environmental environmental consequences of, of what the next winter is going to bring. But with a winter that isn't particularly severe, we might just about get to the other side with high prices, yes, but without power cuts. The variable for this winter is going to be the weather, as it often is in so many different ways. If it's a particularly severe 
um, winter that's both cold and cloudy so that we don't get any solar energy and not very windy so that we don't get any wind power and dry so that all the hydroelectric power in Scandinavia um, isn't there, then we could be in for some power cut trouble um, for industry anyway, if not for domestic consumers. So it's it's a weather forecaster that we need to be for, for the winter. But once we get through this winter, I think there are sources of optimism about uh, the growth, the economic growth that will come from the investment that we will be making in the green transition and the strategic and other economic benefits of that will flow from that. So yeah, I'm going to have a, an optimistic weekend, Jim. Excellent. Chris, great to talk again. Uh, look forward to touching base again next week. Have a good weekend and uh, Cheers, talk to you. Bye. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www cjpeconomics.substack.com You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.